so hi, hi, Kathy. I mean, I, I, um, I was just saying that it's funny because I rarely get a chance to talk to you and then I'm making you do it in public. But, um, you know, Kathy is, I, I guess we're friends. I see you probably more on Facebook than in real life. But um, I first uh, met Kathy probably mostly at conferences when I was here being either an entrepreneur or an investor whenever, mm-hmm. um, you know, fancy people wanted to round up people to ask questions about Japan. Um, I'd often either uh, be in the audience listening to Kathy or be at a round table with Kathy and she always had super insightful stuff to say about Japan. So I've always been kind of a huge fan. Um, but uh, but also I think today I wanted to hear a little bit more about sort of um, your story and how you got to where you are and what you do. Um, maybe, and since, you know, probably most of my gang don't know you, do you could you start out by sort of introducing yourself? Sure. So, um, first of all, thanks for inviting me um, to do this. So, I am a Nisei Japanese American, second generation. Both my parents come from a very small town called Gojo, she in Nara Prefecture. Um, my father is a farmer, and he uh, actually had the opportunity um, after he graduated from high school to. Uh, be an agricultural trainee in the United States for one year. So if you can imagine Japan at that point versus America at that point, uh, really kind of in the late 40s, early 50s, uh, what my father discovered in America, he realized that that was a dream that he really he had to fulfill. He wanted to make it, in other words, big uh, as a farmer uh, in the largest you know, economy in the world. So he returned to Japan, um, dis- uh, married my mother, uh, they had my sister, my sister was born uh, in Nara, and then my father took off back to America uh, with a one 10,000 yen note in his pocket, no English, uh, not many contacts, and he started to work, and at that point the yen was 350, 360 yen to the dollar, so he used to say what he'd earn in one month was more than a Japanese salaryman at that point was were earning in a year. Hmm. So after about four years, he earned enough money, saved enough money to pay for the ship fare for my mother and my sister. Took ten days, remember back then, to get from Japan uh, to California where they were living, and then they started to you know settle down, set down roots, uh, to get a huge loan to buy fifty acres of property in the Salinas Valley. Mm-hmm. And hence started his um, uh, commercial flower business, and I was born and raised in California. So, so what year was this approximately? This so this is right the uh, basically in the mid fifties at that point, nineteen okay. fifties, and um, sorry, maybe more like the late fifties if I if I think mm-hmm. back. And I was born in nineteen sixty five in Mountain View, uh, California, which so is where my parents just, were living. Then. Just as an FYI, it's funny because my mother moved to. Illinois two years after the war and uh, they grew up um, sort of back and forth between Japan and um, and I moved to the States. I was born in 66 and I moved to the States when I was two. So I didn't, mm-hmm. wasn't born there, but we have sort of slightly, except that my mom, my um, my uncle was there at the time. He went, he went into um, academia rather than, um, right. I think that's, yeah, it was, but you were on the West Coast, I guess it was pretty different, but. <laughs> yeah, and you know, my, my parents were, were clearly not the first Japanese immigrants to land in California as farmer, farmers to start their lives there. There were a lot of other 
Nikkei or Japanese families who had immigrated, many in fact from uh, Kyushu, uh, from Kagoshima. Uh, and so I grew up uh, in an environment, it was very rural where I grew up in Salinas, California, but with a lot of other uh, children from immigrant families like my parents. And I actually attended Japanese language school uh, painfully every Saturday morning uh, at the local Salinas Buddhist temple. I, I, um, hate, I hated that too. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it was sort of our parents' way to kind of inculcate or keep, uh, retain some of the, uh, the homeland language and culture uh, with the next generation. And, and, so. then, and then how did you end up back in Japan? And so did you join Goldman when you were in the States? No, not at all. So um, I went to, to college on the East Coast and I went to graduate school in Washington, D.C., and I was um, doing a master's uh, in D.C., and in between the two years, I did a summer internship here in Tokyo with Mitsui Bank. Um, this is a long time ago. Uh, I wore the Japanese, you know, women's uniform, very lovely pink and gray outfit. Uh, that was by far probably the most um, uh, fascinating learning uh, experience I've ever had in my career, by the way. Uh, and that's when I met my husband, uh, Jesper Kohl, who is a German national. He went to the same graduate uh, program that I did. Uh, he was already here in Japan. We met. I still had a semester, though, to finish uh, to get my degree. Went back to D.C., graduated, and immediately came back here simply because I wanted to be with him. So I had to get a job. Mm -hmm. And uh, finance, frankly, was not on the top of my list, um, but it looked like um, I could do something in the research space, which seemed the most interesting to me. I first started working for Barclays. Uh, the, the bank had a securities firm here for four years, and then uh, four years later, back in 1994, Goldman Sachs recruited me to be their chief Japan strategist. So I've been there for almost 23 years. Wow. So what, what is it, you know, I know you, you have a compliance thing, so you can't like give stock tips, but you can talk about what you do, right? Yeah. So basically, I, my role is a kind of a macro type role. It's a big picture type role in, uh, in a research department. We are giving advice to our uh, in, in investor, institutional investor clients about how should they invest or think about investing in the Japanese equity market? So my role is uh, I have to do a lot of macroeconomic analysis. Where is the economic growth going? Where is the currency going? But then also help our clients figure out what in, uh, sectors within Japan they should be investing in. Should they be investing in technology, in retail, in real estate, in banks, um, that sort of thing. So we write research on uh, long-term thematic issues, uh, as well as short-term, you know, sort of tactical advice. So mm -hmm. my clients are half here in Japan, um, and the other half are overseas. So I do a lot of, a lot of travel. And, and I mean, I, I see you in social settings sometimes, but I, I always notice people are either trying to, um, induce you to think something and nudge you in a direction or trying to get stock tips from you and I always tell them like no that's not actually what she does she talks about big picture stuff but this I mean do you find that and is it annoying <laughs> yeah um, and I also get it from my Japanese relatives who live here and they think well you know she can give us some hot hot tips um, so uh, as you know for compliance reasons uh, I don't cover individual companies so mm -hmm. I can talk about broad directional things with respect to the economy and the market but I can't give um, individual company. So, 
So I know this isn't the reason you do it, but I, I mean, I think, you know, one of the big things that I think even um, our prime ministers talked about is the importance of the role of women in the workplace, <laughs> both from a um, financial perspective, but also just from a social perspective. And I know you've been doing a lot of work in that. Can you talk about it a little bit? Sure. So the genesis of this so-called womenomics research that we started doing basically 17 years ago in 1999 was back then. So first of all, I started working as an equity strategist in 1990. That is the absolute apex of the Japanese stock market. It peaked um, end of 89 in the beginning of 1990. So I had been working for nine years in a very depressing market environment. The market was crashing banks were struggling under non-performing loans, the fiscal debt was ballooning, uh, the labor force uh, participation, everybody knew it was going to shrink, and the, the main prerequisite, if you're thinking about investing in stocks or equities anywhere, is you must assume there is some growth potential. Uh, but it's very hard for me to explain to people why there might be some growth potential given all these negative headwinds that were facing Japan at that time. So I was actually really pregnant with child number two, my daughter, uh, in 1999, so maybe the hormones uh, impacted my thinking, but uh, I realized after my, my son was born four years prior that a lot of my Japanese female friends, unlike me, you know, after maternity leave, they did not return to work, and in fact, at that point, more than 60% of Japanese women, after their first child, quit working, like full stop. And when you're talking about well, what drives potential economic growth anywhere, it's basically labor, capital, and productivity. Those are the only three ingredients. And if labor shrinks and the other two factors are static, your potential growth rate is obviously going to go down. So yes, you could try to raise the birth rate. Yes, you could open the door to more immigrants. But I just thought those two factors would take a lot of time. But what about squeezing more of the existing population? Uh, obviously getting more women to work and at that point the participation rate was maybe only half of all Japanese women who could work were working uh, and also older Japanese people were not working I think to their full potential so we started writing about this topic frankly back then um, maybe the Ministry of Health Labor and Welfare gave me a call but other than that all of my Japanese clients which are basically 99% men mm -hmm. no response you know omoshiroi kind of interesting Matsui-san but let's move on you know where's the Nikkei gonna go so, you know, fast forward to 2013, this administration that we have now under uh, Prime Minister Abe, he suddenly repositions this topic of womenomics as kind of a core pillar of his national growth strategy. In other words, he takes this issue of diversity out of the realm of what I call sort of a human rights issue, or it's a, you know, what they call in Japanese, jose no mondai, you know, a women's problem, and actually brings it into a different context, which is this is necessary for economic growth and for competitive, you know, uh, businesses, which I think actually got more traction or allowed this topic to get more traction than uh, it had ever done before. You know, think about it. Right now in Japan, there are 40% more jobs than Japanese people seeking work. 97% of high school graduates can find employment. You're looking at an uber-tight job market, in other words. Mm -hmm. And so, again, unless you're willing to open the floodgates to foreign workers, I mean, they're trying to open it a crack, but not enough, what are you going to do with the, the labor shortages that you're already facing? So I don't even think it's an option at this point. 
but it's how do you take these these numbers and or take these women and try to encourage them to stay you know within uh, the workplace and of course it's easier said than done there are many many not just uh, infrastructure obstacles like inadequate daycare and, and nursing care facilities and capacity, but there's a lot also, as you know, a lot of social mores. You know, a lot of parents do not want their 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 daughters who are mothers uh, giving up the care of their grandchildren to strangers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of things within overall society that need to be fixed before this uh, can really be resolved. But the good news is, uh, strikingly. Because of the labor shortages I just described to you, uh, did you know that there's more women working in Japan today than in the United States of America? 66% of all Japanese women who could work are working. That equivalent ratio in the United States is only 64%. Those two lines actually crossed last year. So, but so, granted, so, so that's an upward trajectory. Like, like where, like, where actually, was it a decade ago? As I said earlier, about 50, around 50, 52%. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. But t- the caveat is, most of those jobs that the Japanese women have been taking on in the last few years are not full-time employment, but rather part-time, right? Mm-hmm. Part-time workers make up about 40% of all employees in Japan. Women make up 70% of that 40. Mm-hmm. So while the numbers in absolute terms are rising, we're still not seeing the female representation at the upper levels mm-hmm. of leadership, decision-making, uh, and that lot. Yeah, and that's tr- true in the U.S. as well, right? I mean, do, yeah. do, do you find... Because it's interesting, my my sister did a paper, which um, was a long time ago, so I don't know how, and and she was viewing it from an anthropological perspective. Um, My mother and my grandmother, they were all all feminists, so my sister was sort of studying feminism, and she felt that there was a part of the U.S. feminist movement that was uh, spurred forward because of violence, with domestic violence and things like that. So there was an anger involved in the feminist movement that allowed Mm. to move it in a different way, that in Japan, even though there's some oppression women have quite a bit of power um in the household and in the in the family structure so women didn't ha- seem to have as much rage um and it was sort of a more of a quiet oppression and so she felt that there was a lag that was going on um but it sounds like in the workplace um so you said the numbers have um, increased I, and my mother was a a, a a woman ceo and for a while she was a ceo of a, a subsidiary of nhk and she was the only woman of the hundreds of companies and I remember when she pointed out, this is sort of weird, um, Kaicho of the time, she must have said, well, you're not a real woman. And there, you know, I remember like talking to Aiko Ogawara-san, and there, there are a number of sort of um, well-known women CEOs in the past, but generally they got treated like men, you know, and I, I don't know if it's just sort of, you're talking about temporary workers, but kind of at the senior level where you probably spend a lot of your time. I mean, have you noticed any change not both in the metrics, but also in the way that, that you're treated? Yeah, I think I'm a, a, a bit of an anomaly, though, because I'm not, you know, a pure 100% Japanese woman. Mm-hmm. Um, when they look at my name card, my first name is Kashi, mm-hmm. so it's it's in Katakana or phonetics, so they immediately recognize me as she's not pure Japanese, and, and therefore they don't treat me, you know, as, as, as such. Yeah. But what I, will, what I will say is, Although people say, but, you know, people's social mores and ways of thinking and attitudes don't change that quickly. That is true. But I will tell you, um, you probably are exposed to this at MIT, is uh, my experience recently with young Japanese men 
is that their values, uh, their ways of thinking about what works best for them, what, are, what do they desire in terms of uh, potential employers, they have a very different mindset to me than say that they're, they're same equivalent cohorts 5, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, I'm meeting a lot more young Japanese men, for instance, who ask questions about work-life balance. Those questions usually only directed to me by Japanese women, not by Japanese men. And so I'm actually excited by the prospect that young Japanese men who are looking at their fathers and grandfathers, 24-7 Japanese salary men, right, their entire lives not spending really much time at home or with their families, they're rejecting that notion. And because it's a seller's market for labor right now in Japan, they're looking for employers that are going to accommodate their values and their needs, right? Mm -hmm. So it's got to be, for example, not seniority-based employment and promotion and compensation, but something that's more merit and performance-based, uh, not 24-7, you know, FaceTime is the, the measurement of performance, but rather um, I want to be flexible. I want to have an employer that's going to give me mobility opportunities uh, and things like that. So uh, I'm actually encouraged that I think it's not just a woman's only battle that's being fought, but I think that the younger generation are really going to help, the younger generation men are really going to help move the needle. And you see some very prominent CEOs uh, today that get it because, again, I think if you, if you ask any Japanese CEO across any sector, what is your number one you know, challenge? Uh, it is really talent, right? How do you recruit good talent? I think the other tailwind that I think is going to help move this diversity mission forward is globalization, right? Mm -hmm. Talk to any Japanese company, no matter how domestic they are, they know that the growth potential is greater outside Japan than inside Japan long term, so they all need to go global. Well, how are you going to go global if you only have monolingual, monocultural, you know, monogender, whatever, mm -hmm. uh, talent? Mm -hmm. It just is, isn't going to fly, right? So. I think there's now an open, more open-mindedness, and again, there's a, of course a spectrum of views on this, but I think Japanese managements are finally kind of uh, looking a little bit more peripherally and abroad and open-mindedly about talent and how to access that talent, which means they're going to have to tap into non-traditional sources uh, of recruiting uh, going forward. Interesting. So I'm, not, I'm actually not that pessimistic. I think yeah. the winds of change are going to help this. In interesting. Um this is slightly weird for me to say in a public place, but um, it, it's related. So I, I'll say, I mean, at, at, in academia at MIT, as well as other places, we, we don't pay um, market rates in, for most roles. I mean, we underpay people, we give people benefits and it's a nice environment. But what's what I find is interesting is when I'm interviewing for staff positions, uh -huh. um, I find a, a, a sort of an incredibly much higher number of qualified women uh, who are available for the types of roles that I'm looking for, just sort of statistically speaking, um, mm. which is kind of interesting because I think it's, it's, it shows, I think it's kind of an indication of a glass ceiling, right? Because what you're finding, I think, are women who have taken a position in some organization and then um, haven't been able to find upward mobility. And so now they're looking and willing to take a pay cut or or a lateral move to a place that might actually be have a better work-life balance or be more interesting um and you know I, I, but but for me it, interestingly i you know it's it's a it's a hugely important source of my talent 
And, you know, I'd be curious, uh, you know, but I think it's also because, you know, I find right now, so we, we our incoming women for the Media Lab is about 50% this year, which is the best in the history of the lab. So we're very wow. proud. But but I feel like in, in education, more and more, I think women seem to be, um, the, the gender balance seems to be getting better and that the stuck part seems to be as you start to get to the higher um, levels in the companies, the CEOs and the management roles where the sort of boys club sort of, you know, starts to stifle it. Um, where do you see the, the, the class ceiling in Japan? Where do you think most of the women are getting stuck? Is it in school or is it later on in management? I mean, where do you see the bulk of that? Well, well, to be honest, I think it's at multiple layers. I mean, mm -hmm. for example, if you talk about academia and in our research uh, report on womenomics that we did in 2014, I've written four research reports in the last 17 years on the topic. And in there, I have a graph showing, for example, the gender breakdown of the student body uh, of the top universities in Japan versus, say, the United States. And as you know, in the United States, this is undergraduate, by the way. Mm -hmm. It's roughly 50-50, right, for most of the so-called top, you know, universities. When you look at Japan, however, it's quite shocking to see that the female ratio of some of the top schools here is max 25, 30, maybe 35 percent. When, if you look at the test scores, right, of the high school students, it is pretty much 50-50. In many cases, some, you know, principals tell me it's over 50 percent, with the women being more or having accomplished higher test scores than their male uh, peers. So what is happening? Why aren't these women, say, applying to these top universities in Japan? I think that's where the sort of social pressures are coming in, right? So there's the old kind of thinking that, well, your daughter's really, you know, STEM-oriented. She's very talented in sciences, but if she goes to University of Tokyo and she studies Rike, you know, engineering, is she really going to be a, a very attractive uh, marriage prospect for some, you know, young man down the road? Uh, and this sounds really odd in this 21st century, but it unfortunately still happens. Otherwise, it's hard to explain why those ratios of representation of females in the top schools here in Japan are so low. And I think at the corporate level, uh, the issue that still I think exists is it's not that they are. Uh, lacking in, well, let's say, I think what's happening is a lot of the women, they are either self-selecting themselves into roles that are not sufficient to give them uh, the qualifications that they need to get to, say, the executive management level, or that they are not being selected by their superiors. So I'll give an example. You know, one of my friends at a very large automobile uh, manufacturer here told me this story, which is fascinating. They were trying to open up a business uh, in Latin America, um, I think it was uh, Brazil, they had three internal candidates. One was a female, the other two were men. men. These are all Japanese people. Uh, and by far the most qualified was the woman. She spoke Portuguese. Um, she had lived abroad in um, other aspects of her career. The other two gentlemen never lived abroad, uh, but certainly had some experience that could probably uh, allow them to succeed. But what happened was, in the discussion, about who should be selected, they overlooked the woman because they just assumed that first she was married, she had two children, her husband was working in Japan, there was no way he was going to pick up and leave and, um, and, and just follow the wife. So they just said, she'll obviously say no, so let's just ask one of the other two gentlemen. 
To which my friend intervened and said, are you absolutely out of your mind? <laughs> you know, why don't you at least ask her, just give her the chance to respond. Maybe she says no, and then you can move on. And when they did that, it took her less than 10 seconds to say, I am there. I'm going to leave my kids with my husband. My mother's mother-in-law is going to move in with them. It'll be fine. And she went to, on to be extremely successful. So there's an issue, I think, of Japan of these unconscious biases, these assumptions or presumptions that are made. Um, and again, it happens on both sides. It's not just the employers, but it's also the employees themselves, the women themselves who sort of opt out of roles that are, you know, going to give them the, the CVs or the experience that they need. Another friend of mine often uses this term, you know, and this is a little bit uh, maybe uh, demeaning, but they say, oh, women are often given the R roles in Japan, you know, HR, PR, CSR, mm -hmm. and, and those roles are, you know, not that they're not important, but they're not always the right uh, roles or qualifications of experience needed to get to, you know, the C-suite or even close to the C-suite kind of role, right? You need mm -hmm. to be in sales in, in the revenue-generating parts uh, of a business. So mm -hmm. I, I think the obstacles are, are multiple, multiple um, uh, faceted and multiple layers. Uh, but a lot of it has to do, I think, with just getting ourselves out of this fixed uh, mindset that women are only suitable for such roles because they have family obligations and all of that. Um, I don't know how much you look at other countries like Korea or China, mm -hmm. um, but like, it, I mean, how, how do you think we compare? Yeah, so I actually co-manage a research team across Asia-Pac, and it's quite striking. Um, Korea... Uh, I think you could just, if you, you know, went to Korea with a blindfold and you talked about this issue with people in Korea or Korean business, I've held a, co uh, did a conference there once with their gender equality minister, it's strikingly very, very similar. And if you look also, though, at things like the number of hours worked annually, I think Korea is number one and Japan may be number two, mm -hmm. um, and the males all work and the females have low participation rates in, in the workforce. So many, many uh, commonalities. But again, a lot of that has to do with how are people evaluated in the workplace. Mm -hmm. uh, similar to Japan, it is based on seniority. It's, a base, it's based on FaceTime with your boss, etc. Whereas if you go to other countries, um, I think, you know, to some degree, China, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, you'll see more, I guess, equality. Like just in my role in finance, I see a lot more women across the table in those meetings than, say, I would see in in Korea. So yes, there are you know there are differences. I would say the country that's most uh, closely aligned or similar to Japan would be Korea, mm -hmm. and I think that's at one one extreme. Mm -hmm. But again, everybody is in the war, as you know, for talent. We're all looking for the you know uh, same type of profile of of person. Um, and again, we need to make sure that we're creating an environment that is c conducive, that is attractive enough uh, for the best quality talent in the region to want to work uh, at our at our organizations and and you, you work for Goldman Sachs which is a obviously not a, not a Japanese firm um, do you do you find that the in your industry um, that the foreign f firms have a much better gender balance than the Japanese firms yeah and um, you know the the deep dark secret that foreign firms for example operating in Japan have is that uh, for the Japanese talented women who say, you know, don't work at Japanese organizations because of all those factors I explained earlier, 
we're able to scoop them up, right, mm -hmm. uh, and employ them. And I think there's a particular issue I see when recruiting here uh, with women who, not at the, just the, un, you know, when they graduate from school level, it's when they start working and then they stop working for a while. That blank period, mm -hmm. uh, many Japanese, I think, HR departments think that they've just gone through some brainwash machine and forgot everything that they <laughs> have learned. And so they are unemployable after a three, five, whatever year, you know, absence from the workplace. Whereas we'll take those those women and say, you know, wow, you've got a pretty decent resume. Uh, you took some time off for whatever personal reasons, but we'll hire you, right? Mm -hmm. So I think our maybe the for most foreign firms, there's a bit more open-minded thinking about uh, attracting and recruiting uh, that type of talent, which mm -hmm. I think is frankly, uh, there's plentiful, plenty of those women. Mm -hmm. around it's just a matter of finding them and so overall though you it sounds like you might be optimistic about women in japan and that you think that the impact on the economy will also be pretty substantial is that yeah i mean i can also be very um pessimistic it's very easy <laughs> to be pessimistic if you just look at the numbers and again i'm not trying to say that everything is wonderful for women um, you know, we all know that the, the hours are still tr for traditional Japanese corporations, very long hours, um, still pr predominantly seniority-based uh, evaluation metrics, uh, and these are very tough conditions under which women can really thrive. So, um, you know, somebody said it's like, you know, turning vegetarians into carnivores. Uh, no, those things don't change overnight, but I think, again, there's an economic um, imperative here. Mm -hmm. uh, you could either throw your hands up in the air and say shikata ga nai, which is that I, my most hated Japanese statement, which is nothing can be done, <laughs> or we can all think, you know, government, private sector, um, and society can work as a triad constructively to find, you know, solutions that work for everybody. This is not just to help women, obviously, it's to help mm -hmm. families and to help communities and more broadly the economy and so you know we did some statistical analysis it's playing with numbers perhaps but if the Japanese female participation rate currently around 66 percent could match that of Japanese men which is among the world's uh, developed world's highest you could boost Japanese GDP by almost 13 percent that is one of the highest potential lifts uh, mm -hmm. in the world uh, from uh, closing the gender gap uh, in employment 13% is probably unrealistic, but even mm -hmm. getting half that, that kind of prize for an economy that's aging rapidly with a huge debt uh, burden, uh, I think is something uh, mm -hmm. worth working toward. So, so this is not necessarily about women, but just about productivity in Japan. I'm, I'm now going back and forth between the US and Japan a lot. Um, and it's, and this may sound kind of, um, sort of negative, uh, it is negative, um, um, but I, I find that the Japanese business style doesn't seem to be evolving out of this kind of um, long meeting centric, not so productivity and effectiveness oriented. It just seems like it's quite inefficient and I always used to feel it, but now that I'm building my own organization to be more focused on sort of, you know, shorter effective meetings using um, tools when we can, I, I, but this, and you were talking about FaceTime, you know, there, there's, there seemed to be a lot of protocol and ritual that's built into Japanese business. And I would assume that that lowers the overall productivity per, per capita if most of the time you're spending in meetings, just going over 
uh, agendas and protocols and confirming and confirming. I mean, I don't, and, and this is sort of at, because I haven't thought about it really as a, a, from an economics perspective, but you could imagine that you end up hiring more people and having less earnings if a lot of the people you have just sit around and do, uh, That's right. protocol. I mean, do, is that, is that, is that a significant thing? And do you think that can change as well? Well, I, I think it's not, um, new news or surprise to anyone because if you look at the average, say, uh, profitability or margins of Japanese corporates vis uh, relative to their um, U.S. and European peers, they are very low, uh, structurally very low. Uh, and I think, I think part of the um, difference is explained by what you just, just described, the productivity rates, not across every industry, of course, but many industries is very low. And frankly, you know, we, we've thought about this issue a lot in in, um, in our analysis, and I think part of it has to do with what is the economic incentive for a Japanese manager or CEO to become more efficient, to become more productive, to say get out of um, uh, non-profitable, non-core businesses, because we've looked at, for example, what's the ultimate incentive? I think it's economic incentive, and as you uh, well know, if you look at the uh, average um, CEO compensation for the top Japanese companies, I'm talking average, it's roughly 1 million US dollars, which is very small compared to their Western counterparts. What is much more shocking is the fact that the ratio of fixed or, uh, or base pay is as much as 60%. That is higher, by the way, uh, a fixed pay, fixed pay ratio than Chinese, Indian, and Brazilian CEOs. Hmm. Hmm. So to me, you kind of get what you pay for, and if you think about you're in their shoes, you're not getting paid a whole lot to take risk, right, by restructuring organization, getting it more productive, because what does it offer you, right, in terms of a reward? It's very little. So we've, we've been doing a lot of work um, and trying to think about, so you don't want to go the you know extreme end of that spectrum, of course, is maybe the U.S., and there's a lot of criticism, as you can imagine, about that. that's too extreme. Mm -hmm. But there must be a, a golden middle ground where you offer more performance-based pay, right, to incentivize managements to take risks, to make, make those necessary changes to the issues you've just described, to improve returns, improve profitability, improve competitiveness. Um, but without that, I think it's kind of hard. You're, you're not really dangling any carrot, are you? You're just saying, well, the market really likes this kind of stuff, so go do it. But there's very little upside, quite a lot of downside, if you think mm -hmm. about it, for most CEOs in Japan. So I think thinking about constructive ways to change the incentivization structure, mm -hmm. uh, which I know is, is kind of taboo in, in many parts of Japan, but mm -hmm. after all, it's a global war for talent, right? Mm -hmm. And Japan is going to have to attract more global talent, and it's going to be very hard to do so, in my view, with this mm -hmm. existing traditional... Uh, structure. And just for the record, this was not an official conversation between a Goldman Sachs analyst and a Sony board member. <laughs> but um, but no, I, no I, I totally agree. And I think that uh, the, the, and, and, and at a very personal level, what I find is I get dragged into meetings that seem to be four hour, four times longer than um, I would want them to be. And, uh, um, and that that's been a real frustration in uh, a really great thing living in the U.S. Although I guess if you're at Goldman and, and you're Kathy Matsui, people probably don't waste too much of your time. <laughs> um, Kathy, is there any else, anything else you wanted to talk about or share? 
Yeah, so away from um, the sort of, I don't know, J Japanese economy um, yeah. topics, um, some, some people are familiar with what I do outside of Goldman, Goldman Sachs in my day-to-day -day job, but uh, sort of as an extension of my work here in Japan to try to promote more women in the workplace and women's empowerment, um, I've been involved with uh, a very exciting initiative called the Asian University for Women, AUW. And what AUW is, is a very unique, uh, brand new institution that opened its doors in 2008 uh, to women across mainly South Asia and into the Middle East uh, with the sole mission, uh, which is to train, educate the next generation of leaders uh, in Asia and the Middle East. And uh, we have graduated four cohorts. Uh, we have 600 women from 15 countries spanning uh, the regions I've just described. Um, First Lady Aki Abe uh, here in Japan is a patron. Uh, Mrs. Sherry Blair is uh, the honorary chancellor of the institution. And I've been to the, the university is based in Bangladesh, but uh, if you see what power, transformative power education has on these women, uh, you are blown away. And um, I know I'm, I'm doing some shameless advertisement yeah, here, but uh, I really feel passionately about, you know, I, I travel to many parts of Asia. Uh, I travel from the airport, you know, to the city. I look out the window and I, I, I just often wonder why are they there and I'm here? And is it just serendipity? Is it just fate? Uh, and what is it? what is our global responsibility as global citizens uh, for the rest of society. Uh, and to me, education is really the silver bullet, and particularly women's education in many of these countries, as you know. Mm -hmm. So um, just a pitch, uh, mm -hmm. if any of you are interested, the foundation is actually based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, really? uh, it was founded by Kamala Maud, uh, a, a gentleman who I went to school with at Harvard, and it's just a very exciting initiative, and we love more support. Is, is it, is it, what level of edu education is it? Because a lot of, I mean, I, I've been spending a little bit of time with Malala, who's been working mm -hmm. for, uh, in, you know, pretty tough areas um, in building yeah. schools. And um, we've just been um, out into the Middle East with my students working with refugee camps and things like that. And so there's sort of a whole spectrum, right, of sort of the later career and then just people who For are sure. very difficult. Yeah. I mean, what, is there a focus area of the work that you're doing? It is uh, definitely un undergraduate. Mm -hmm. So is offering tertiary education to women, mainly from countries where that access to university education is quite limited, especially for women. And the unique nature of AUW is it is not a technical university. Mm -hmm. It is a liberal arts curriculum. And that means we're trying to teach these women uh, not just the you know academic subjects that they're interested in, but critical thinking skills, mm -hmm. questioning mm -hmm. the status quo, challenging the status quo. Many of these women are coming from areas where you know, there's a, still a lot of human rights abuses where there are women who, you know, they're married off to their cousins and they don't want to, so they get acid burned or, mm -hmm. um, you know, lots of horrific things that happen. And again, it's the 21st century, yet this stuff still goes on. So until you get women, I think, of course, men as well, but particularly women in positions of leadership in these uh, parts of uh, the world, a lot of these things that we think are horrific and unbelievable, 
uh, are very are going to be very very hard to change. So it's not to say that primary and and secondary education are not um, as important. They're of course important, particularly in South Asia, we find there is actually a lot of access to primary. Mm-hmm and secondary education for women, the big stumbling block, though, is getting them to tertiary level mm-hmm. uh, where they actually can become or have the qualifications to become true leaders mm-hmm. uh, in their communities. Um, so it's very exciting. And mm-hmm. well, I'd love to talk to you about whether, I'm, you know, we're always looking for uh, undergraduate programs to connect to because we're a graduate program. And, you know, yeah. m- most people don't need the Media Lab, but they're kind of all over the place and we find them through workshops and things like that. But I'd love to try to connect and to figure out how we might find some people from your network for that. Um, and, yeah, and there, and there was a question, there's a question here about, um, from Reno Yasui that says, uh, women quitting their work because of marriage or maybe under social stress. But when it comes to pregnancy, how can companies and women solve the kind of biological, uh, issues properly? I mean, th- I guess this is partially daycare, partially, um, it's, uh, uh maternal leave. Um, but is is there? Do you see anything happening right now in in Japan that makes this yeah, so, better? Yeah. So what's what's I think some good news, and and this person is right that there is a lot of um, uh, issues just socially, right, um, uh, uh, surrounding you know when women are pregnant and going on leave. But I think a lot of companies are now waking up to this, this reality of if you want the women to come back after having a child, mm-hmm. you should probably um, encourage them before they leave. For example, mm-hmm. uh, giving them a role, uh, giving them an exciting and ambitious opportunity in the workplace before they go on leave or before they become pregnant mm-hmm. is usually much better than saying, oh, you know, we know she's going to get, you know, she's just got married, so she's going to get pregnant, so we shouldn't give her any kind of um, ambitious opportunity. That's, I think, traditionally the the mm-hmm. going assumption, right? Mm-hmm. But let's give her something that, if, particularly if she's a high potential uh, person, mm-hmm. give her something that's going to stretch her, encourage her, mm-hmm. and want her to come back after her leave. So it's not just the infrastructure part. It's not just about let's make sure that she's got you know um, uh, at home you know computer setup and all of that. It's about what is her motivation after having a child that's such a life-changing experience, going to mm-hmm. entice her to want to come back and, and, and get back into her career. Because mm-hmm. if you don't give her that enticement, right, there are just too many pressures that are going to pull her in mm-hmm. different directions. Mm-hmm. And especially if she's in a home environment where maybe her partner is not that cooperative at home, then, of course, she ends up doing everything. And mm-hmm. she will say, well, my work is not that, that exciting. It's not that motivating. So why should I continue, right? Mm-hmm. But if you give her exciting, motivating opportunities before she leaves, and you uh, maybe stay in touch with her during the leave, mm-hmm. you know, in an un- unobtrusive manner, of course, uh, and just stay in touch with her and stay connected with her, I think that's a much more successful formula, mm-hmm. uh, I found at least, mm-hmm. for uh, getting that woman to want to come back to work mm-hmm. after leaving. And, and it must also be mentoring, right? It's probably easier for a woman to give that advice and um, create that career path than a man who doesn't really understand what it feels like to be a woman. And it seems like, you know, it's, it would be yeah. sort of a self-replicating thing because, you know, I, I, I just, I, I'm now um, starting to advise students and faculty and I'm really having to understand how 
different cultures and different genders think about careers, you know, and you have all these stupid assumptions that you've made and they're wrong. And so I think, I mean, obviously if you talk and you listen, but if you're trying to give advice that might not be obvious to the person, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think having, yeah. so a lot of my entrepreneurs um, who are women, I introduce them to each other because the more senior entrepreneurs seem to have a lot of experience about how they got through this or how they figured out how to yeah. do that. Um, yeah. Um, so hopefully you're being a good mentor to other women in Japan and uh, uh, you can start a trend or you, I guess there, but there are more, a lot more now. I mean, when my mother was the CEO, I remember that we, there were like, you know, three you know, <laughs> who were women, but and I, I guess there are more now. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah. And even women, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm volunteering uh, for the women, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, women, uh, WCD, Women Corporate Directors Association of Japan, and mm -hmm. as you know, uh, sitting on company boards here, Japanese female representation was maybe one, one and a half percent um, for the longest period, mm -hmm. and now it's three, so it's mm -hmm. doubled, but it's still three, and so we're trying to promote, you know, there's clearly a lot of qualified women who could, could be board members, but mm -hmm. How do you find them? You know, yeah. how do you identify them? And so we're trying to introduce these women to potential boards who are looking for talented women, mm -hmm. um, uh, and also training the women because, of course, not everybody is uh, trained up to become a qualified mm -hmm. director. But really, I think uh, if you think about that, and if you think about Parliament, for example, less than mm -hmm. what's around ten percent of the Parliament here is represented by women. That's lower, by the way, than the ratios seen in Saudi Arabia and Libya. <laughs> That's kind of shocking yeah. for the. Third largest and supposedly democratic nation on on the planet. So, uh, what do we do about this? Is Japanese society happy with the fact that ninety percent of the diet is made up of men um, mm -hmm. when it's supposed to represent society? So, uh, trying to encourage. Uh, I know some young female politicians who are trying to encourage women in university and even at the high school level to think about becoming a politician. But again, like you said, it's hard to imagine what you can be if you can't see that you know mm -hmm. in front of. Right, so I think people like Governor Koike, the the mm -hmm. new Tokyo governor, uh, who's become very prominent, and other female politicians. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of obviously responsibility, but I think a lot of hope that they can provide mm -hmm. um, to 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 act as role models uh, potentially for the next generation of talented young women. Yeah, yeah, and and, and the fact is. America is really not very great at this. I mean, that, I don't know if you saw that recent horrible survey of board members, uh, men who just don't think women should be on corporate boards. I mean, it was a, there was a, 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 a study that was just, it was, it was pretty disgusting. I'll send it to you. Uh, um, but, uh, but, and the board thing is difficult because I think the boards are really risk adverse and they want people who have been on other boards and they want board members that somebody that they know knows. And so it becomes sort of a, a social network, you know, and a social network that didn't allow women in for the longest time. So I think, you know, I think that, uh, that's one of the things that I advise a lot of people on is sort of how you, what the path to getting onto a public company board is, which is usually you start with a small organization and you got to get recommendations and there are things to learn. But, um, but I do, I, I, I'm finding that, um, uh, you know, some very strong, um, women, um, I think I'm not positive, but I think the majority of my advisory council at the media lab are women. Um, but I think, mm -hmm. I think the corporate public board seems to still be a challenge. Um, um, Kevin's asking whether, um, the numbers have increased for corporate boards in Japan. Do you know? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that is partially correct, that a lot of um, prominent women board directors serve on multiple company boards, because mm-hmm. um, that's the identification issue that I brought out earlier, right? Mm-hmm. If you're just not aware of who could be on your board, you just end up finding, well, who is a female board member today, yep. and I'll just ask her if she can take on another role, right? So, um, But it is true, the absolute numbers have increased, but as I said, it's gone one and a half to three, so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's still a very, very uh, yep. long, long way to go. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you, Kathy. I don't want to take you too long away on a, on, on a weekend, but I really appreciate your time and sharing your thoughts. And hopefully, I'll get to some FaceTime with you, too. <laughs> <laughs> Real FaceTime. Real FaceTime. Okay, well, okay. thank you and say hi to the family. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.